Look, I want you to eat the rainbow, but I don't necessarily want you to poop the rainbow. I actually think that a boring brown bowel movement can be a glorious, great thing. Is it kind of dependent upon what it is that you eat as well? Yes, it is. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world. Norway, Puerto Rico, South Korea, and all places in between. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 13 of season 5, number 312 overall. Does the color of your poop matter? Is it telling you that it's time to see the doctor? Or maybe you need a little bit more fiber in your diet? We are going to find out just what your poo is telling you today when we're joined by the Prince of Poop himself, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. He is a gastroenterologist and best-selling author of the book Fiber Fueled, and he is here for his monthly constitutional Q&A on The Exam Room Live. But we're not stopping there because the doctor's mailbag is wide open and flooded with your questions that he's ready to answer. So we have someone who wrote in asking about whether their poop should float or not. And we'll be wiping away that mystery in just a minute. Also, kombucha, is that good for digestion? And what should you eat if you have chronic diarrhea? And one more about poop color. Dr. Bolsowitz is going to clue in an exam roomie asking about blue poo. Yes, blue poo. All of that and a lot more. Plus, I have details on a new study showing that you can add up to 10 years to your life by changing your diet. This is research just out this week, casting a pall over the standard American diet and a big bright light on beans, greens, and grains. Those details a little later. And if you're in the Naples area of Southwest Florida, I would love to see you Super Bowl Sunday, February 13th at the Southwest Florida VegFest. I'll be speaking there along with neuroscientist Dr. Mickey Witt. Plus, Dr. T. Colin Campbell will be there and many, many others. And there is a link to all the details right now in the episode notes. Time now to answer the question, what is your poo telling you? Let's find out with Dr. Will Bolsowitz on The Exam Room Live. Thanks for being here, my friend. Hello, Chuck. Uh, the puns are everywhere. <laughs> and, um, you know, look, this is a this is a topic that, I mean, look, you, you can't become a gastroenterologist unless you are prepared to have detailed conversations about poop on a routine basis. This is what I do for a living. And so I'm excited to um, dive into this topic here with the with the exam roomies and everyone. Yeah, someday I hope that you write a book with just a list of all of the questions you've been asked about poop. I think that that could be your next bestseller, my friend. But let, let's start with Andrew's question where he is asking about the color of poop. He wants to know flat out, what does the color of your poop actually mean? Well, so it's interesting. There's a number of different things that you could find. I'm, I'm just going to be totally serious. I hope you guys don't mind. Even though I'm talking about poop, <laughs> I will try to uh, be as serious as I can for a moment here. So, um, look, I want you to eat the rainbow, but I don't necessarily want you to poop the rainbow. Uh, I actually think that a boring brown bowel movement can be a glorious, great thing. And so these different colors that may appear in the bowl uh, it's important. I think it's important for you all as human beings to be able to interpret what you're seeing down in sort of the basin of that porcelain thing, that porcelain throne. And so let's um, let's run through and like Chuck, I can rattle off colors or if you want to rattle off colors and I'll just give you the interpretation of what uh, the scoop is from a GI doctor's perspective. I'm happy to do that. We could well, run let's... all the way through the rainbow if you want, but let me just say brown, <laughs> first of all, is normal. Okay. But what shade of brown should we be looking at? Something a little bit more on the lighter end, or should we be looking for a deep, dark, rich brown? Yeah, I don't think you want it too deep, uh, necessarily too deep and dark, and nor do you want it to be something that's looking like a, more of like a sand color or a pale color. 
Um, let me uh, point out that like a sand colored bowel movement, very pale bowel movement can potentially indicate that there's um, something going on with the with the bile ducts or with the gallbladder. Uh, you could potentially have a, a, a gallstone that actually is causing a blockage. And so the reason it, it starts with, you know, why is our poop brown? And the answer actually is bile. Bile is the reason. Bile that comes from the liver. It's a digestive juice. It helps us to absorb fat. Passes from the gallbladder down through the biliary system, the biliary tract. Enters into your small intestine right after the stomach and it mixes with food. And this bile drifts through the intestines. Some of it is reabsorbed, but some of it is excreted in our bowel movements. And so that's the reason that our poop is brown. And what about uh, <laughs> what about if somebody has, say, red in their poop? I would imagine that that's a little bit more alarming. Yes. So red can clearly indicate blood. And um, how we interpret the color of the blood can give you some clues about where the blood may be coming from. So, for example, um, the brighter that it is in terms of the red color, the more that it's like a fire hydrant, the closer to the bottom that it is. So when a person has very bright red blood, I would classically think about, like particularly if there's no pain, I would classically think about bleeding internal hemorrhoids or an anal fissure. But the point is that it's coming from somewhere in the rectum or very close to the bottom, right? So very bright red. Whereas the further that the blood travels through the body, the darker that it becomes. And that's a consequence of the blood starting to get processed by the body over the course of time. And so a, um, a darker sort of uh, maroon or purple color can indicate that it's coming from somewhere higher up in the colon. So for example, on the right side of the colon, or even coming from the small intestine, or in some cases, even the stomach. Um, so the color is important. Now, look, if you think that there is blood in your stool, I'm just going to tell you that as a gastroenterologist, I have a policy, which is that when you see blood in your stool, you should get checked. You should get a colonoscopy to make sure that you understand. And it's far too easy for us to dismiss this type of thing and assume that it's, hey, you know, this is just hemorrhoids, no big deal. Well, I just want you to know that I've had a number of patients where you think it's just hemorrhoids and it proves to not be, and you end up so thankful that you do the colonoscopy to verify that. So if you see blood in your stool, this is a reason to get checked. This is a reason to get a colonoscopy. Now, one other thing, Chuck, and I, I saw some people in the comments box. Thank you, everyone who's active and engaged in the comments section. Um, it's also possible to see red in your stool when you consume beets. And so I have had a number of patients who they come in, they're like, Doc, I'm seeing red in my stool. And you, of course, ask, like, did you eat beets the night before? And the answer is yes. And more than likely, that was the beets, as long as it doesn't come back again. But if you eat beets and then 12 hours later, you see red in your stool, you know where that's coming from. Well, in the interest of oversharing, that can happen to me uh, on the front end of things, not necessarily the back end of things. The first time that I noticed that, I was freaking out until the doctor asked me that very same question. Did you eat beets the night before? And sure the heck enough, I did. And there you go. Um, we have um, some people saying uh, that, uh, for instance, Northwest Backcountry at 12.05, after eating a rich roll smoothie, my poop can be green or blue from the kale and blueberries. So is it kind of dependent upon what it is that you eat as well? Yes, it is. So actually, um, for those of you who have read my book, Fiber Fueled, I talked about this transition that I made around 2013 into 2014, where I started to move away from eating fast food and hot dogs and things like that towards eating plants. And one of the first things that I did was I started to drink smoothies and I would do them as actually a meal replacement for dinner. So I would make literally a big pitcher of smoothies. It was probably, you know, 40 ounces, maybe more of smoothies and highly rich in greens. And back then I would notice actually that my bowel movements would turn green. And so if you're pushing the greens really hard, you may actually notice this. Um, so it's not something that necessarily I would say that you have to do or that you're unhealthy if you don't have green bowel movements. 
but it is something to be aware of is that if you're if you're pushing hard on the greens whether that be in salads or in smoothies um, then that's something you may notice now the blue is interesting because the blueberries if you if you go hard on blueberries it will turn your stool dark and it may not necessarily be blue it may actually end up coming more like a black color almost or a deep purple and this is uh important to be conscious of because we talked a moment about ago about blood and how the color of the blood tells you how long the blood has been inside your intestines well, blood that is classically coming from the stomach and is slowly moving through the intestines will come out black. And we call this melena. Melena, M-E-L-E-N-A. This is the word that us gastroenterologists use for a black stool that's the result of bleeding, typically in the stomach. And so melena tends to be sticky and it has a very distinct odor. So not to be too graphic, but Chuck, when I walk through the hospital, I can smell this. Like I can be in the hallway and be like, okay, there's a consult in room 428 right now. They might as well just go see them because they haven't called me yet, but I know it's coming. So um, it's something to be aware of that if you see this black stool, particularly foul smelling, sticky, that may be indicative of a GI bleed. And that's, that is a reason to get checked out immediately, potentially even going to the emergency room. Now, flip side, you consume a very large amount of blueberries all at once. Could be a smoothie or it could be oatmeal or whatever it may be. You consume a large amount of blueberries all at once and you notice that you have a dark stool, but it's not foul smelling, it's not sticky or weird. That's probably your blueberries doing that. All right, so I wanna stick on the blue here and take a question from Charlotte. And let me just say to Charlotte, before you answer the question, I thought I was the only person on the face of the earth who this happened to as well. Charlotte's question is, my poo was blue after eating Superman ice cream. How bad is that? Yeah, so it, it, it's actually kind of interesting, Chuck. Um, blue dye, food dye, uh, has been shown to uh, allow us to time, like, so blue food dye is not absorbed and it will actually be excreted in your stool. And it actually has been shown to allow us to determine the transit time of your intestines, meaning how long it is from the time that food goes in your mouth to when it comes out your bottom. And that transit time actually gives us some information about what your gut microbiome looks like. And so this is uh, what I'm referring to right now, Chuck, is research that came out of a company that I'm involved with called Zoe, where they fed people blue muffins. And these blue muffins, now let me say, like I, I know that there's a lot of concern and apprehension about food additives. Um, so there actually is no data that blue dye is harmful to the gut microbiome. There is concern with some other food additives or colorants, uh, particularly some of the yellows and reds. But Anyway, um, in this study, like eating these muffins allowed you to see what your colon transit time is, which gave you information about your gut microbiome. And that's just kind of interesting that we could collect information like this. And that's where the Superman ice cream is coming from. So are you able to tell then how healthy a person's gut is based off of how quickly food is moving through the system? Like, And then further on that, like, what is the sweet spot for that? How long should you want it to take? Yeah. So, um, the, uh, this is, th this is just a part of putting the puzzle together. And so this is not the end all be all right. I wouldn't have a person come to my gastroenterology clinic and just eat some blue muffins and I don't talk to them and I just interpret, you know, how long it takes for them to have a blue bowel movement. Like I wouldn't do that. Um, but I do, I think this brings up an important point, which is that, you know, we have these vital signs, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory weight rate. Um, so we have these things that we look at. And as a doctor, like we're trained, this is actually critical information. It's one of the first things that you do for your patients is look at that. We should be looking at our bowel movements. And there's information that we can gather. And this, to me, the important point from my perspective as a gastroenterologist is that this is the window into the health of our gut. There's information that we can collect. So if you do sort of the blue muffin challenge, if you do that, then classically what we want to see is a bowel movement somewhere in the area of 24 to 36 hours. When you go beyond 36 hours, then we're moving into sort of the constipation realm, okay? 
So that's what we classically want to see, but this is not the only thing that I look at, right? I look at frequency. I look at completeness of the bowel movements. Like are people completely evacuating when they go? go? Because there are a lot of people that I take care of that are constipated, even though they poop every day, because they're not completely evacuating when they go. I want to look at the form. So there's something called the Bristol stool scale. The Bristol stool scale breaks poop into seven different types. And you can use this at home. You can find information about this, by the way, on my Instagram. Uh, I have information about this in my upcoming book because this is how important I think it is. You can literally look in your toilet bowl, see which of the seven types on the Bristol stool scale. You can, by the way, Google this if you like to as well. See which of the seven types you have. And this is providing us with some information about what's going on with your gut. So the point from my perspective is don't jump off the toilet, smash the flush button and walk out the door and pretend that it never happened. Recognize that what is there is information that can be collected and shared with your doctor or used to try to improve your health. All right. Hello to Brenda, Carla, Janice, Nicole, Oahu, Wendell, and everybody else who's tuned in today. Appreciate you guys raising your health IQ with us. So many questions, Dr. Bolswitz, in the uh, chat room already. We have a couple of people also asking about what a yellow stool might mean. That's one color that we haven't covered yet. Yeah. So, and Chuck, I encourage you to keep running through these colors as the show goes on. Keep, keep tossing them my way and I will take them on. Um, a yellow bowel movement. So, could it be food related? Could it be a food tolerance? Possibly yes. Um, but the other thing to be aware of is that if a person is struggling to process and absorb fat in their, in their diet, um, which can come from a number of different reasons, including the pancreas failing to keep up with its ability to produce digestive enzymes. So if a person is struggling to process and absorb their fat, then they may actually notice that they have greasy foul-smelling, yellow bowel movements, all right? Like, I'm not talking bright yellow. I'm just talking more of a tinge away from the deep brown that's starting to take on some yellow. And that may be indicative of malabsorption. So that's where, if that's the case, it may be worth talking to your doctor about that, particularly if you're having other changes in the bowel movements beyond just the color, but also like the smell or it's greasy or it's loose. These are things that may be consistent with, with, uh, uh, fat malabsorption. Well, let's uh, switch over and go back to the aroma thing here. Take a question from Tofu Tuesday at 1208. Wondering, this is one I haven't heard of before. I'll ask something. Why does my poop sometimes smell with coffee? I never drink coffee. So that's a bit of a mystery here. I don't know. Gosh, uh, <laughs> that is quite a mystery. Uh, I So look, uh, I've taken care of thousands of patients. I don't know how many thousands, but thousands of patients. I've never heard that before. Um, so let's see, how would I interpret this specifically? I don't know exactly, but I do know, what I do know is this, that um, there is a unique odor that we tend to have to our bowel movements, and that's indicative of our gut microbiome. So uh, each one of us has this, whether it's passing gas from below or our bowel movements, the smell that you notice is in part personal and reflective of your unique gut microbiome. And when you notice a difference or a change in the smell away from your baseline, that's where I think the question starts to come in of what is causing this change. So if this person were in my clinic, like let's pretend hypothetically this person's in my clinic, do I say to them, hey, this is what you got? No, because I don't know that. But what I am curious about is, is there a specific food or something in the diet that may be causing this change in the smell. Now it may smell like coffee, but that's not really necessarily the point. The point is there's a change. What's behind it? Let's keep a diary, right? So that way, when you notice the smell, write down what you've had to eat, what you've had to drink during the last, let's say two meals and kind of the last 12 hours. Like let's try to figure out what's been going on here. And it's not necessarily just food, but I would make sure to also include things like beverages, include alcohol consumption things of that variety. Let's uh, take a question from Sarah. You know, they say that hope floats, but should your poop? Sarah's wondering whether the poop should float or should it sink? So um, usually poop sinks, but I will say that I 
find that there are actually quite a few people who start to read stuff on the internet and they become concerned because their stool floats and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but to have a floating stool by itself from my perspective is not necessarily a red flag or a huge deal. Now, if you're having floating stools, in addition to the fact that it's loose, it's foul smelling, it's becoming yellow in color like we talked about, these are indicative of fat malabsorption. So um, it's part of a larger puzzle when you see floating stool in addition to these other changes in the bowel movements. Changes in bowel movements are worth looking into, are worth talking to your doctor about. So any sort of change in your bowel movement that you see, if this is part of it, then it's worth talking to them. But when a person comes in and it's just quite simply in isolation, hey, I've noticed that sometimes my stool floats and there's no other symptoms, no, no digestive symptoms, no other change in the bowel movement, I don't necessarily um, get too worked up about that. Let's talk consistency. Take a question from Terry at 1215. Terry is wondering, Dr. B, when you wipe, are you looking for a clean sweep or do you want some clingers? Is that normal? Uh, this is interesting. So when our stool is nice and healthy and formed, then it should be soft and in the shape of a sausage. And so to clean after that, shouldn't necessarily be this great challenge, right? Shouldn't necessarily uh, smear and things of that variety. Gosh, now I'm starting to get into the territory that I'm getting a little bit, I may be blushing a little bit. So sorry, you guys. Because <laughs> um, I don't talk about wiping very much. I do talk about poop all day. But anyway, um, but the, I think the point though is that it shouldn't necessarily be that difficult to clean. So if you're having difficulty with cleaning, it may be worth talking to your doctor about. And one of the important things that can come up that I think is worth being conscious of is that there can be an issue at the bottom, such as internal hemorrhoids. Internal hemorrhoids can affect our ability to have a competent barrier. And some people who have internal hemorrhoids, they'll have a bowel movement, they'll clean, and then they'll notice a little bit of smearing after the fact. And this is the result of those hemorrhoids being large and disrupting the barrier uh, that exists at our bottom. So, um, so at least from my perspective, uh, that's some of the stuff that I look for. Now, the other thing that I want to say, this is not being scientific anymore at all, but uh, if you haven't invested into a bidet, I just want to tell you, it will change your life. Uh, I think that getting a bidet, we got it right before the pandemic started, which was fortuitous timing given the to toilet paper shortage. But whether toilet paper is available or not, gosh, you are missing out if you have not tried a good high quality bidet at home. There you go. We, yeah, we have not talked about the bidet here on the show before. Okay, so you're all in for the bidet. Good to know. Good to know. Yep. Um, I don't have a brand that I'm necessarily endorsing there. I just am a big fan of the bidet in general. Can you go outside and use the garden hose? I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> Unless you live in the country, in which case, what are you doing going inside in the first place? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Uh, okay. So let's talk about the precursor to poop right now. Take a question at 1221 from Naveen, wondering about gas. Naveen, wondering what is the average frequency of passing gas per day for a normal person? It's actually shockingly more than you would realize. Everyone passes gas except for my wife. I just want I just want to say it <laughs> up front. So don't don't feel bashful if you pass gas once in a while. That's okay. Um, aside from my wife, you know that's very normal. And um, so the actual Chuck, I don't recall the exact numbers, but they've done studies on this, and the amount of gas that is passed by each one of us on a routine basis is a lot. And um, when you eat a whole food plant-based diet, you are consuming food that is fueling a healthy gut microbiome. And in the process of fueling a healthy gut microbiome, healthy food does produce gas. And you just, you know, as long as it's not causing you discomfort, you just quite simply allow it to pass. That's a normal bodily function. And that's actually a sign of a healthy gut microbiome that you're producing gas from the fiber in your diet and therefore fueling a healthy gut microbiome. We should celebrate that. Honest question. I mean, what does the odor of your gas tell you? If you're clearing out a room, is that always kind of a sign that something's amiss inside? Yeah. If you're, well, uh, if you're consistently clearing out a room, so let's pretend you have one, uh, let's just call it greasy meal and you clear out the room. Okay. Come on. You had a greasy meal. 
you know, it's okay. You'll, you'll move on with your life. <laughs> None of us are perfect. Um, but when you're consistently having foul smelling gas, uh, or it has sort of that sulfur smell to it, like a stink bomb that, um, to me may be indicative of a larger problem. It may indicate malabsorption. Now, good news for whole food plant-based consumers. Um, people who eat a lot of meat are more likely to have this type of foul smelling gas. And it's kind of, I mean, gosh, I don't want to be too graphic, but let me just say what it is. I mean, it's basically rotten meat. It's, it's decomposition of the animal meat that you just consumed. Um, so that's what happens during digestion. Uh, so, and that's, that's where that foul smell can come from. Now, sulfur containing plant foods like garlic, for example, could give people the foul smelling gas that we're referring to. And, um, again, that would be a one-off kind of deal where, Hey, I had a lot of garlic at dinner last night and now my, my gas smells a little bit, not a big deal on that, but when you're having it consistently, then it may be worth looking into. And if you're backed up, right, you're constipated, is there a good chance that you're also full of more gas because the poop isn't moving out and you're just building and building and building in there? You you and I, Chuck, we've been, we have a, enough of a close friendship through this show that you are already onto something that um, you knew I would want to talk about, which is that constipation causes more gas to be produced. And there's this vicious cycle that's kind of interesting, which is that when we're constipated, we produce more gas. So like, for example, um, you may notice that you start to pass gas shortly before you need to have a bowel movement, right? And it's basically your body is telling you like you're passing a lot of gas, toot, toot, toot. Okay, time to head to the restroom and have a good healthy bowel movement. And then you'll notice the gas will improve substantially. Um, so that's your body kind of giving you the warning sign. Um, when we're constipated, we produce more gas. And what's interesting is that the methane gas has actually been shown to slow bowel motility. So it's a, it's actually a vicious cycle of sorts, which is that you, you become constipated, which produces more gas, which slows bowel motility, which makes you more constipated. How do we disrupt this? I mean, by the way, this is the reason that the number one cause of gas and bloating in my clinic is constipation. Um, how do we disrupt this? We get people pooping. You get them into a rhythm. When you get into a rhythm and you're moving things through, then you will see you will find that the gas and bloating improves substantially and you stop passing so much gas. By the way, I just want to say, you guys in the comment section are hilarious and I am loving you guys today. It is so much fun today. <laughs> Dude, they are the best. I love the exam roomies. They have no idea how much I appreciate them. Tofu um, Tuesday. Tofu Tuesday says this is my favorite episode to date. You guys, this is so fun. The Tofu Tuesday is the greatest. Uh, she may be our most frequent flyer here on the show. I see her so active in the chats all the time, and I appreciate her uh, more than she knows. Um, let's take a question from the Nemeths at 1222, as long as we're talking a little bit about constipation. Kind of long-winded. Uh, they write, uh, I'm plant-based and exercise. Don't eat sugar. Don't eat dairy. None of that. But I can't seem to have a bowel movement every single day. I even sprinkle fiber in my meals. So how can I go every day? They're wondering. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, you could eat the perfect diet, right? And there will be some people who have constipation, just like there will be some people who have acid reflux or develop heart disease or all these different things. So consuming more fiber doesn't necessarily ensure that you won't have constipation. In fact, when you are constipated, I actually don't necessarily start going hard on the fiber in my patients who are really constipated. I focus first on getting them pooping and then I go on the fiber because the fiber can produce more gas. And if they're not mobilizing their bowels, then actually they will become even more constipated. So it's sort of a, a paradox of sorts. And it's part of the nuance of the conversation around fiber that I, I want to be very clear on because I feel that sometimes people perceive that I'm just, you know, go, go, go on fiber and every single person, every single time. That's not necessarily true. So now with regard to this, what can you do? Okay, let's talk about a couple of different things. You guys ready to talk about ways to improve constipation? I'm gonna start with some natural things, but I wanna acknowledge that there are some people that these things that I've described don't necessarily work all the time. And they may actually require medication in some cases or other things. And um, you know, one thing I should add real quick, Chuck, is that I did an entire course 
on constipation. And for people who are interested, you can check that out on my website. But let's talk about ways to address constipation. Number one, food. So beyond fiber, uh, we know that kiwis, two kiwis a day, shown to improve constipation. Flax seeds, chia seeds, prunes. It's not just grams of fiber. There are specific characteristics about these things. Even prune juice works. There are specific characteristics about these things that help us in terms of getting a good bowel movement. All right, number two, have a routine. All right, have a daily habit. So it's kind of shocking how much, how well this works, what I'm about to describe to you, because it feels so juvenile in a way, but it works. Your body thrives on rhythm. There is a 24-hour clock. And in a perfect world, I'm just going to tell you, your body would love to know what time you want to have a bowel movement. Your body would love to have an appointment and just show up at that time, make it happen. So how do we do this? How do we schedule a time to have a bowel movement with our body? What we do is we have a morning ritual where we wake up, perhaps we drink a couple glasses of water. If you're a coffee or a tea drinker, you have your coffee or your tea, have your breakfast, and then you go and you sit on the toilet for five minutes. Don't strain, don't push, don't force yourself to go. If five minutes pass and you do not go, stand up, walk out the door, but do this every day. And when you do this every day, what you're gonna find, you will be shocked that Dr. B was right day three or day four, you're going to start to notice the bowel movements are coming at that time. Why? Because your body is learning that this is when you want to do it. And so your motility will start to ramp up right around this time to prepare your body for a bowel movement. It's a beautiful thing. Um, what else? Position. So we have invented the toilet and the toilet is like locked into perpetuity in terms of the shape in the United States. And it makes no sense. It is not the way that I would design a toilet. Maybe I should replace John Crapper and come up with my own Bolsowitz toilet. All right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the key here is that we were never meant to be sitting with an upright, erect posture in a chair. Um, Chuck, is it okay if I adjust my camera position and show you guys? You some do stuff what here? you got to do. You, you're the expert right. over here. I'm just, you know, on my Google calendar scheduling my morning constitutional tomorrow. Do what it cool. is you got to do. All right, cool. So here's the scoop, you guys. Check this out. So uh, you can see here that I'm like sitting upright and erect. This is not a way to actually poop. And there's a muscle that's down inside our bottom. It's a sling muscle. And um, this sling muscle will not adequately relax to facilitate a healthy bowel movement. What I've put here is a trash can, but it's not meant to be a trash can. It's actually meant to be a way for me to create a couple of inches on the ground like a stool all right i'm going to show you guys the proper way to poop i think this is unprecedented on the exam room podcast chuck we, we are in uncharted territory my friend we're in, right so we're using the camera to show you how a doctor does a, a bowel movement all right so what you do is you put your feet up all right you put your feet up and now my knees are above my hips okay y'all can see that knees are above the hips this is more of a squatting position but I don't keep my back straight up and erect. What I do is I lean forward and I put my elbows on my knees. Now by doing this, legs are nice and relaxed. They're elevated a few inches. My knees are above my hips. My elbows are above my knees. And now this sling muscle that's down inside my rectum, uh, outside my rectum and my pelvis, it is now in a relaxed position, which allows me to have a good, healthy defecation. All right. So proper positioning is huge. Now they got this thing called squatty potty. You don't necessarily have to buy into it's a cool name. You can buy the product if you want, but it's not necessarily that you need to get a squatty potty. It's more so, Hey everyone, <laughs> Dr. B back, uh, done with my defecation demonstration. Um, but it's not that you necessarily need that. It's more so that, uh, you just need to elevate your feet. Chuck, you are blushing. Dude, uh, I don't I'm think loving the show, man. <laughs> All right. So uh, anyway, you just need some sort of stool that you can put your feet up on. And it's the exact same thing I teach my kids. So, all right. Uh, one last thing. So we talked about some foods. We talked about timing. We talked about 
squatting and proper positioning on the toilet. The other thing that can work wonders is magnesium. Magnesium. Now you want to talk to your doctor about this. This is not, hey, Dr. B gave me medical advice. I'm not giving you medical advice. I'm empowering you with high quality knowledge that you can lean into to try to improve your life. But magnesium taken before bedtime, specifically because there's different types and different types have different effects. But magnesium oxide, magnesium citrate are the ones that I tend to go for. You take it before bed. And um, what you'll find is that this can actually help to facilitate a good, healthy bowel movement. So I have someone, I'm not going to say who it is, but someone very important in my life who, uh, and it's not my wife, by the way, just to be completely clear, I will, I will give that uh, uh, clarification. But I have someone important in my life who suffered with gas and bloating for decades, all right, decades. And this person just sort of, uh, kind of accepted, like, this is who I am. I'm gassy and bloated. This is, it's miserable, but this is the way I am. And what I did is I had this person add magnesium before bedtime and some prebiotic fiber supplement to their morning coffee and the things that we're talking about. And this person, even though they did not believe that they were constipated, guess what? They were a little constipated. They were not adequately evacuating. And these changes, magnesium, a little bit of prebiotic fiber in the morning, squatty potty, um, having a daily morning routine, this person, the gas and bloating is gone. I mean, it was there for 40 years. Now it's gone. So uh, I just, you know, I'm hoping that this will help some of you guys at home. You're going to get this information on no other show other than the exam room live. And that is why I'm so grateful that all of you guys are hanging out with us today. You got the demonstration. We have covered color. Uh, you know about squatty potties. You know about bidets. Uh, by the way, thank you, Janice Hall. Uh, you win the comment of the day award for uh, informing us that using the outside bidet with the garden hose in minus 24 degree weather is a bad idea. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, a anyway, Dr. B, I mean, th this is just great. Uh, I want to get to a couple of more before we wrap things up here today. You were talking about magnesium. Uh, Sarah has a question wondering how long a person can keep taking magnesium oxide and whether or not it is habit forming. It is not habit forming. The ones that, so it's interesting. The ones that we worry about, that I worry about in terms of being habit forming are the ones that many people, many people tend to prefer because they're natural. And these are Senna, uh, Senecot, um, or Cascara, or even Aloe Vera. These are stimulant laxatives, meaning that they will stimulate motility inside your body. They're highly effective. So for people who are constipated, they start using them. They're like, gosh, this works. It makes me poop. And then what they say next is, and when I don't take it, I don't poop. And that's because they have become dependent on it. And it actually can be quite complicated and challenging to get people off of those medicines. So again, Senna, Cascara, and um, Aloe Vera. If you're taking a natural supplement for constipation, check the bottle to see if that's in there. And if it is, probably works but you probably also are, are becoming dependent on it to poop. Magnesium does not do that. Magnesium, the way that it works, I, by the way, I saw someone who asked, does transdermal magnesium work? No, it does not. Because it's not about your blood levels of magnesium. It's about how much magnesium is actually in the lumen of the intestine and the water that it is pulling into the intestine to help to facilitate the flow of the bowel movements. All right, let's see if we can get Edith some help here at 1237. What if your feet don't reach the floor when you're on the toilet? Does that count for knees higher? She says she's just has short legs. Oh man, I think that's so funny, but unfortunately I don't think it does because the issue is that you want your feet to ultimately um, be anchored into something that you can push down on. And so that way, cause you don't want the, them to be like basically gravity pulling the legs down. You want the legs up in a very natural, relaxed position. If you're having to strain, if it feels uncomfortable, then this is not going to make it uh, um, seamless and natural for having a good bowel movement. So again, I think that I would still recommend having a stool to put those legs up. Yeah, Edith, I feel your pain. I'm only 5'5". Five five. I know what you're talking about. Um, Heather, let's uh, wrap things up with two quickies. Heather is wondering what she can do about chronic diarrhea. So kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum that we've been talking about. Step number one with chronic diarrhea has to be, why are you having chronic diarrhea? 
So it would be impossible for me over the course of the exam room podcast to tell you the answer to that question. You have to work with a medical doctor to get answers. Um, things that come to mind in a person that has chronic diarrhea, I want to know that they don't have celiac disease. By the way, the only way to really fully answer that question is to have a person consume gluten and then perform an upper endoscopy with biopsies of their small intestine. So I want to know whether or not they have celiac disease. I want to investigate something called sucrase deficiency. People that have irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, you guys need to hear this. This is something that can be a game changer in your life. There's an enzyme called sucrase that processes sucrose. You've heard of sucrose. It's table sugar. Sucrose is in healthy food too. You could be eating a whole food plant-based diet without any added sugars and be exposed to sucrose. That doesn't make sucrose unhealthy. But some people struggle to process it. And there's an easy breath test that you can do that will tell you if this is a problem and it may change your life. So I want to know if they have sucrase deficiency. I want to make sure they don't have Crohn's disease or also colitis. Uh, I want to make sure there's not an infection. And also, particularly in women past age 50, I want to make sure there's not something called microscopic colitis. Um, so many times this ultimately does require me to do upper endoscopy and colonoscopy in addition to some other testing. Uh, once we know what the cause is, then we can become laser focused in terms of our approach. Pretend, uh, one other thing I should mention real quick, Chuck, before I move on, if sure. your gallbladder is removed, if your gallbladder has been removed, there is a huge percentage of people that get diarrhea from that. Um, so if something to be conscious of, it could be 10 years ago that your gallbladder removed and then you start having diarrhea, that could still be the cause. So anyway, but one, one quick little tip that I would toss out there, um, I have found that prebiotic fiber supplements can, in many cases, shock even me, the gastroenterologist, in terms of their efficacy in improving a person who has diarrhea. So if you add a prebiotic fiber supplement, it could be that this is irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. You do this and you notice an improvement. Amen. We win. So um, just something to think about. There you go. Final question comes to us from Sheila, who is wondering about kombucha. She's been uh, sending in this question uh, every month that you've been on, and I'm glad that we're going to get to it here. Sheila is wondering whether drinking kombucha can help you regain good bacteria after a course of antibiotics. There was an interesting study uh, by two guys that my very close friend, um, Simon Hill from Plant Proof, actually has on his most recent podcast episode. So I think you guys are going to want to tune in. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm planning to because I'm very interested to hear what happens. Two guys from Stanford, Justin Sonnenberg, who's a microbiome expert. He, by the way, endorsed fiber fueled and Christopher Gardner, who is a, um, a clinical trial nutrition expert who actually works with me on the scientific advisory board of Zoe. And they did this study where they looked at people introducing fermented foods uh, over the course of eight weeks. Now, people were like basically going from not consuming fermented foods to consuming a lot of fermented foods. But what they did find that was very interesting, and it's a strong argument in favor of adding fermented foods to our diet, is that by simply doing this, by simply adding fermented foods into their routine, they were able to add more diversity to their gut microbiome. Diversity is a measure of the health within your gut microbiome. So in other words, adding fermented food added diversity. Kombucha was one of the things. I would not personally encourage kombucha to be the backbone of your fermented food consumption. I would encourage you to make fermented plants, like for example, sauerkraut, be the backbone of your fermented food consumption. If you want to consume kombucha, I've like kind of, kombucha to me is like the waves of the ocean. They come and they go. Sometimes I'm drinking it, sometimes I'm not. Um, but if you do consume kombucha, I think it should be consumed in moderation. I think that you should dilute it down with water. I wrote about this in the book because too much acidity can affect the enamel on your teeth. And it can be, I, from my perspective, when consumed in moderation, a healthy part of a healthy diet along with other things that you're doing, like fermented sauerkraut, kimchi, miso, things like this, tempeh. Yeah, and uh, Northwest backcountry, you're wondering here about uh, if anybody had ever had beer poops. And yeah, that that is a very real thing. The, the version 1.0 of me definitely had some Budweiser bowel movements. So that's the thing. It goes right back to what it was you were talking about earlier, Dr. B. 
Yeah. And well, and so people like, by the way, you, you don't have to feel obligated to consume kombucha. If you don't want to consume kombucha, don't consume kombucha. But I, I, I do want to comment real quick. Some people are commenting that they've heard that kombucha is dangerous. Um, calling kombucha dangerous, if that's the case, then spinach is like way more dangerous. So um, there are two case reports from the 1990s, which are quite debatable on whether or not there ever was really a truly a problem of people that were doing homemade kombucha, consuming it in excess and um, had bad outcomes. This is the amount of kombucha that is consumed on a daily basis in the United States is like, I, I would be curious what GT's kombucha, how many bottles they sell per day. Is it <laughs> tens of thousands? Is it hundreds of thousands, right? Like we are far more likely to be hurt by jumping in our car and driving to work. Yet we do it every single day. Now, this is not to say that I'm saying that we should be consuming kombucha without restriction or maximizing the kombucha in our diet, or that I'm saying that kombucha is the backbone of a healthy diet. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you're a soda drinker and you like carbonated beverages, replacing soda with kombucha in moderation is a healthy substitution. Would I take water over kombucha? Absolutely, yes. But calling kombucha dangerous, uh, I wouldn't do that unless you're prepared to also call spinach or driving your car dangerous. <laughs> uh, we're, let's close out the doctor's mailbag. And Dr. B, this is easily, hands down, the best episode I feel that you and I have ever done. This is podcast gold, my friend. Like We should be taking this to Sirius XM right now, nationwide, coast to coast, in everybody's vehicle. Like Let's just do this thing big. Like This has just been fantastic, man. I cannot thank you enough for schooling us today uh, in the way that you have about poo and everything in between. And uh, I would imagine, as long as we're talking about poo here, we're taking it home, uh, people are gonna have some pretty healthy movements if they pick up the Fiber-Fueled Cookbook, which is coming out in just a couple of months and uh, is available right now for pre-order. Yeah, so much cool stuff happening. Uh, there's gonna be, for people who pre-order, there will be pre-order incentives. Make sure that you're on my email list so that you know when those happen. Um, but you know, just a quick plug about the fiber fields cookbook. So I set out to do a cookbook after fiber fields. Basically there was a huge demand. I've been working very hard. I thought it would be easy. It ended up not being easy because I felt compelled to transform this into effectively a toolkit for gut health. So in fiber field, I kind of like lay out this path. Here's the direction that I want you to go. And yes, there are 80 recipes in fiber field. But there are a lot of people who suffer with food intolerances. They struggle. They can't do that. And I wanted to create a cookbook that levels the playing field and includes those people. So that it has an entire methodology. Like literally, it's like basically a book and a cookbook combined, 125 recipes, full color photography, but also an entire book about how to approach food intolerances if that's something that you have. Um, it also teaches you how to sprout how to make fermented foods, how to make sourdough. It's gonna help you to collect your plant points to max out the diversity within your diet. And again, 125 delicious recipes by Alex Caspero, who did the recipes for Fiber Fuel that I know you guys are gonna love it. They're amazing. Yeah, I love Alex. She's been on the show before. She's just a phenomenal human being and uh, quite talented when it comes to whipping up recipes. I mean, you talk about a great recipe creator. She's the one. She is definitely the one. And uh, you are the man, Dr. B. Like, thank you so very much again for being here, brother. This has been a blast. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone who is engaged in the chat box. Y'all are a ton of fun. It's always great to come on the exam room and talk with you, Chuck, and also to have the support of these wonderful people. Thank you, everyone. Be sure to reserve your copy of the Fiber Fueled Cookbook today. There is a link to do just that in the episode notes. And don't forget, you can join us for the exam room live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. We would love for you to join us live because that is your best opportunity to ask experts like Dr. Bolswitz your questions. And if you can't join us live, you can also send them to me ahead of time. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Message me there at Chuck Carroll, WLC. Let's shift our attention now to longevity and new research showing that you can add up to a decade to your life by changing your diet. 
And for those details, we head to the exam room news desk. Humans are living longer, but not necessarily healthier. New research, though, is showing that both are possible if you pay closer attention to what you eat. A Norwegian study finds it's possible to increase life expectancy by up to 10 years by following a healthier diet. The research shows substantial gains by increasing the consumption of legumes, whole grains, nuts, and fresh fruits and vegetables, while limiting red and processed meat, as well as refined grains, eggs, and sugar-sweetened beverages. And the earlier a person makes these changes, the longer they're likely to live with young adults seeing the biggest gains. But the benefits can still be achieved at any age. The study finds an average of eight years of life can still be added by adults in their 60s. And for seniors in their 80s, the average is still three and a half years with some gaining as many as five years of life. The results can only be interpreted as a condemnation on the standard Western diet that is high in fat, but low in fiber. One of the nifty things researchers have done here is to condense the findings into what they call the Food for a Healthy Life Calculator. That's a free tool online right now that demonstrates the effects that certain foods may have on your life expectancy. And a link to that, as well as to the study, can be found in the episode notes. And if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because every new subscription and five-star rating truly does help those individuals who are suffering the most with their health to find this information that can change their fortunes. So please take a moment to do that right now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your shows. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible Dr. Will Bolsowitz for being here. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>